to invite you to turn into uh, your Bibles to Genesis chapter 43. Uh, For those of you who are visiting with us today, we've been working our way through the story of Joseph and his family, and we've been taking our time um, with this uh, section of the book, but today we're going to cover uh, a lot. Um, I'm, I'm going to read verses 1 through 15 of Genesis Uh, 43, but the sermon will encompass chapters 43, 44, and 45. Um, Before we read the first 15 verses, though, of chapter 43, let me pause once again, pray, and and let's ask for the Lord's help as we come to his word. Lord, we thank you for every word that proceeds from your mouth. It is given as food for our souls. Uh, We thank you for the way it teaches us about your designs, your purposes, your plan, your grace, your providence in our lives. So we ask today that you would speak to all our hearts and that by the ministry of the Spirit of Christ today, we would be able to trust and obey. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Genesis 43, beginning in verse 1, let's... Hear God's inspired word. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, that is Joseph, though they don't know his identity yet. The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land and your bags, and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men men took this present, and they took double the money with them. And Benjamin, they arose and went down to Egypt, 
Egypt and stood before Joseph. Well, the story of Joseph and his family sets on display the manifold wisdom of God. God had made promises and God had a purpose for Joseph and his family and God is accomplishing his promises and his purposes through his providence. God made promises as far back as Genesis 12 and and 15 and we're beginning to see the fruition of the coming to pass of those promises here in these chapters and God certainly had purposes for Joseph and his family and we're beginning to see more clearly what God's purpose had been all along in the story. You see, one of the things we we learn from this is God is able to do many things at once. Big things that have to do with human history, the salvation of mankind and, and little things, even working out his purposes at the same time with this small family, this dysfunctional family. And all of it, you see, comes together harmoniously in the wise providence of God. And so as we come to these three chapters, we we come to the unfolding of God's promises and purposes for this family, and it sets on display for us the wise providence of God. Of God, And therefore, I, I hope we've already seen this along the way, but one of the reasons it's so helpful for us as Christians to look at the story of Joseph and his family is it enables us to put our lives into a proper perspective. That God has made promises, that God has a purpose for his people, and that God is at work. Now let's put these chapters into some kind of context here. You remember Joseph had been his father's favorite and his brothers hated him for it. His brothers sold him into slavery, uh, slavery in Egypt. And eventually in, down in Egypt, Joseph rises to power. Uh, he had become the savior of, humanly speaking, the savior of the ancient world as he provided relief from the famine that came for a period of, of seven years. And now while, uh, while Joseph was supervising the distribution of, of grain, his own brothers come from Canaan and stand before him looking to buy grain in Egypt. Remember that when we looked at it, Joseph displayed incredible spiritual wisdom in the way he responded to that situation. He didn't immediately reveal his identity to his brothers, nor did he respond in vengeful anger, which he could have easily done, but instead he put a plan into action. We're told he tested his brothers with the goal being, surely prayerfully, the goal being the reconciliation of his entire family. And it's in Genesis chapters 43 through 45 that this reconciliation begins to take place. And so on their first visit to Egypt, again reminding ourselves of what's happened so far, Joseph Joseph had accused his brothers of being spies. And they said, no, no, my Lord, we are are ten brothers, twelve in all, one is still with 
his, his father in Canaan and the other is gone. And Joseph said, prove it. And so he took Simeon, one of the brothers, and he placed him in prison. And he said, if you come back, bring the younger brother Benjamin with you to prove that you are telling the truth and that you are indeed really brothers. But of course, when the brothers went home and told their father what had happened, Jacob was reluctant to allow Benjamin to go down to Egypt, lest he too be lost. Remember now, Benjamin is Jacob's favored son. And Jacob is fearful that he will now lose Benjamin in a similar way to how he lost Joseph those years ago. And so he's, he's reluctant, but as the story unfolds, Jacob has to eventually uh, give in to the requests of his brothers that they be allowed to take Benjamin down to Egypt. And, and you can imagine the brothers are traveling down, you know, nervous, anxious, fearful, not sure what's going to happen. And of course, it would have been utterly amazing to them when they arrived and receive an invitation to eat at this high official's house, who is none other than their brother Joseph. But Joseph continues here in our text to test his brothers. And the ultimate test comes when he has this high official place his silver goblet in the grain sack of his youngest brother, Benjamin. And so then Joseph's official, while the brothers are heading home a second time with their grain sacks filled again, Joseph's official pulls them over and accuses them of theft. They plead their innocence, and eventually they they go through the sacks one by one, and the silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack. This time, instead of allowing Jacob's favored son to go down into slavery in Egypt, see, Judah pleads his case and asks to take his, his place instead. It's, there, there's a lot in these three chapters. Eventually, Joseph reveals himself to his brother, sends them home, tells them to bring the rest of the family down, and they all come down to Egypt and live with their brother in the land of Egypt. It's three lengthy chapters. What's a what, what, what's going on here? I think the story actually gives us a key to understand what's really going on. In chapter 45, verse 8, when Joseph says this to his brothers, he says, It was not you who sent me, though they certainly did that. But Joseph says, It was not you who sent me, but God. And in the Old Testament, whenever the authors repeat certain words or phrases, that's their way of underlining it or highlighting it for us. And so a few verses before that, in uh, chapter 45, verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. And in verse 7, God sent me before you. So you see these three chapters underline what has been true all along, that God has been at work, that God is keeping his promises, that God is fulfilling his purposes. That God is, well, his fingerprints are all over this family. And so the question I want us to ask today is, what is God doing now? We've we've seen so much of what God has been doing in Joseph's life. But what is God doing now in this family? 
And the first thing I think we need to see here is that God is at work to bring comfort to Jacob. Jacob is at last prepared to let all of his sons go and allow them to travel down to Egypt. Now, to understand the significance of that, I think we have to actually go back to uh, chapter 37, verse, uh, verse 35, when this is after the, the bloody cloak is brought to, the, uh, to Jacob and he's left to draw the natural conclusion. And uh, he says, as the coats brought to him, all his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol, down to the place of the dead in mourning. I think the key phrase there is he refused to be comforted. You know, many of us have experienced incidents of sorrow and disappointment and unexpected tragedy and, and deprivation, and, and we long for comfort. And, and people come alongside of us and, and try to speak words of, of comfort, but so often that, that comfort is, is slow in coming. But that's not Jacob's problem. Jacob's problem is that he refused to be comforted. It didn't matter how much his family was there for him. It didn't matter what anyone said to him. He would not be comforted. I think we might put it another way to understand what was really going on in Jacob's heart. He was, he was saying, it doesn't, it doesn't matter who God is. It doesn't matter what God's purpose is for me. I will not be comforted. And at least at this point, there is, there is a striking contrast between, uh, between Jacob and his son Joseph. Because Joseph has also suffered tremendously. Joseph has lost a father. Joseph has lost his, his brothers, his entire family. He's lost his home. He's gone to Egypt as a slave and been falsely accused and thrown into prison. Both of them have reasons to be upset. But you see, God has done something in Joseph's life and it's, and it's seen in the way that he is understanding and interpreting the events of his life. He has come to see that it is possible for him to glorify God in this situation. That it is possible for him to glorify God in his suffering. Jacob says, I, I will not be comforted. Jacob determined he, he would go down to the grave in mourning. He, he was refusing to even contemplate the possibility that God could yet be glorified through this. And that God could be his Comfort. And so for all of the sympathy, and we ought to have sympathy here for Jacob and his situation. We need to understand that how he has been responding to Joseph's disappearance up to this point, it is spiritual poison. It's spiritually toxic to, to refuse the comfort of God because he is not giving you what you, what you most of all desire. It's it's an indication that Jacob, at least at this point, had digressed spiritually. 
Because this is the Jacob who before all of this was, was clinging to the angel of the Lord and, and saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. And now he's saying, I will not be comforted unless you give me what I want. And oh, we sympathize with Jacob. After all, he, he'd been deceived by his own sons. He'd been lied to for all of these years. Lost his beloved wife, Rachel. Lost his beloved son, Joseph, to unexpected, or what he believed to be unexpected tragedy. But the thing he most of all lost was his singular commitment to the glory of God. And it brought him to the brink of despair. But now God has begun in, in, in our passage today. God has begun to break through in Jacob's heart. And God is at work by the end of this passage to bring comfort to Jacob. Uh, we, we don't know exactly how it happened, but he, he's faced with the reality of the situation. If I don't let Benjamin go, the family dies. That's how serious this famine is. If I don't let Benjamin go, we all starve. In one sense, he didn't really have a choice. And as he sends his sons, though, in chapter 43, he, he prays for mercy. Did you catch that? He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy. That was the very thing he had been refusing for himself for these many years. That God would be merciful and, and tender to him. That God would walk with him as he was burdened down with sorrow. That God would be his, his burden bearer. And that God would comfort his heart in the midst of this affliction. But you see, now at last he's, he's seeking for mercy. And, and the story finishes by telling us that Joseph felt a fire of mercy within Himself for his family, for his brothers and his father. His prayers are answered in Joseph. And what the, the love and the kindness that Joseph shows to his family. But friends, I want you to see the key to, to all of this. To what God is doing in Jacob's life. The key is that in order to gain the son Jacob lost... He has to yield all of his sons into the mercy and care of God. He has to yield to, 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 the, to the tenderness of, of God, the tender comfort of God. He has to open his hands from the things he has been so tightly hanging on to, refusing mercy, refusing care, refusing comfort. And, and it's as though God is communicating to Jacob through this situation, Jacob, comfort will only come when you stop clinging to these things and you open your hands and you yield yourself to me. Will you not trust me? And Jacob is here once again trusting God in his mercy to, to bless. And it's masterful storytelling. Because you know, Jacob has two names. And do you notice what the author begins to call Jacob here in this specific passage once again? Israel, Israel, 
Israel, I will not let you go until you bless me. My friends, this may be a word for for many of us here today. Because loss and disappointment and deprivation can be so, so very painful. It leaves scars. But it can also become a weapon that we use. And we refuse to be comforted. And we begin to cling to other things for comfort. And we need to learn from Jacob here that he found comfort when he let go of his grievances and looked to the God of mercy and yielded himself and his family to the tender mercies of God. That's the first thing I think we see God doing in this story. God is at work in Jacob's life to bring him comfort. But God is also at work among the brothers. So what is God doing in the brothers' lives? God is at work to bring them to repentance. And he does so through this masterful plan of Jacob. Uh, During their first trip down to to Egypt to buy grain, remember that Joseph, Joseph ordered circumstances in such a way that it would have evoked in, in the memory of the brothers uh, their past guilt, what they had done to Joseph. Their, their consciences were pricked. The, the alarm bells were going off in their consciences. When they're, when they're being held in Egypt, you remember they even confessed their guilt to one another about what they had done to Joseph those years ago, perhaps for the very first time, actually bringing it out verbally. And then on the trip home, when they, when they find their money placed back in their sacks, they, they were all fearful and they said, what is this that God has done to us? God is beginning a work in these brothers' lives that he will bring to completion here in this text. So you can imagine at this point, though, as they're going down the second time to Egypt, I think they were terrified. Uh, they didn't know how this high official was going to respond. All they were thinking about was the money that they found in their sacks. But as soon as they arrive, they receive assurance, no, the law has nothing against you. We received the payment. And in fact, when they arrived, then they are invited to, well, to wine and dine at this official's house. Now, here's something interesting to, to note. While they're there, they're, they're seated according to birth. These, these 11 brothers now, because Simeon has been returned to them. What are the odds of that happening? I can picture them sitting around the table looking at each other with utter bewilderment. What is going on here? And the, the 11 brothers eat separately from their, their brother Joseph, according to Egyptian custom, but I don't think that's just a throwaway detail. I think that's meant to remind us of something that's happened in the past. Because we've already been told about another occasion when the brothers ate separately from their brother Joseph. He was down in the pit, and they were up above preparing to sell their brother into slavery. And now here they are, seated at the table, and Joseph is at the high table, exalted by the Lord. It's a marvelous picture. But then notice what Joseph does. 
All of the brothers are fed from his table, but Benjamin gets special treatment. Benjamin gets five times as much as everyone else. What is Joseph doing here? It's a reenactment. Joseph knows how these men responded to favoritism in the past. And so he's saying, let's let's see, has the Lord been at work in these men's lives? How will they respond to favoritism now in the present? Let's see if there's been any real change in my brother's lives. You notice it's striking because there isn't a murmur, there isn't a hint of of complaint, but Joseph isn't done. He He has another test to see just how much his brother's have indeed changed. He, he orders their money placed back in their sacks for the second time. But in Benjamin's sack, he tells his official, place my sil- silver cup, my silver goblet, into Benjamin's sack. And so the brothers are, are returning back from Egypt the second time. Probably at this point relieved that they made it out alive. And at that point, the metaphorical lights turn on in the rearview mirror. And they get pulled over on the highway back to Canaan. And it's Joseph's official saying, thieves, you stole from my master. And they, of course, insist upon their innocence so much so that they say, let let the one who is found with this cup be put to death. And the rest of us will serve you in Egypt. Then they go down to Egypt with their brother Benjamin because the official goes through the bags and Sure enough, the cup is found in Benjamin's sack, Jacob's favored son. And do you see, do you see here what Joseph has done? It is, it is the ultimate test. He created a situation where his brothers are faced with the very same choice they were faced with when they chose to sell Joseph into slavery. And when he speaks to them in Egypt, they go down to Egypt, they're standing before him. Joseph knows exactly what to say. He says, the person with the cup will become a slave. It will remain here in Egypt and the rest of you can go home free. Take your grain, take your money. Benjamin will stay here as a slave. It's another chance to get rid of Jacob's favored Son. What's so marvelous about it is we see the very opposite of what happened with Joseph. With Joseph, it was let him be gone, let him go down to Egypt. And with Benjamin, it is we will not let him go down to Egypt without us. And as they stand before Joseph, Judah is the the spokesman of the brothers. And notice what he says in chapter 44, verse 16. What shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. He confessed that his younger brother Benjamin was guilty. But notice that he also confesses the guilt of all of the brothers. Because these circumstances where it seems like God is after them, these circumstances has awakened within the brothers an awareness of their own guilt and how they treated Joseph those years ago. 
And Judah's speech, I think, I think it's one of the most moving passages in, in all of Scripture. He, he pleads for Benjamin by interceding on his behalf and by offering himself as a substitute. He, he refers to him as the lad, a term of endearment. Take my life rather than Benjamin. Let me stay instead of him. Let me take his place. Amazingly, this man's well, this man who, who used to have such disdain for his father is now pleading his father's case. He says, this is, this is my father's youngest son, his, his favored son, the, the son of his beloved wife who is now deceased. Don't do this to my aged father. This will bring him down to the grave. Please don't do this. Take me instead. You see, it's a wonderful marvelous reversal. It's a complete reorientation of their attitude towards their father's favored son. It's what the Bible calls repentance. The Lord has been working in these men to bring them to this place, to bring them to repentance. The process began back in chapter 42 when they were thrown into prison as potential spies. They, they, you remember in that text, they immediately thought of their brother Joseph and what they had done to him when they threw him down into the pit and then sold him into slavery. They started talking about what they had done. But now it's evident that their admission of guilt was more than simply remorse. So, friends, I, I want you to notice this as we think about God's work in the brothers. Repentance is not just feeling sorry for what you've done. Judas Iscariot felt sorry. And Judas Iscariot went to hell. You see, repentance isn't feeling bad for a moment. It's the radical turning around of your whole life to the Lord and his ways. It's a change of heart that leads to a change of mind, that leads to a change of action. And that is what we see here in these brothers' lives. It's, it's not just that they feel sorry for what they had done to Joseph. It's that God has worked repentance in them so that they do the very reverse to Benjamin from what they had once done to Joseph. You see, the, their attitudes towards their father and his favored son is, is where their sin was on display. And now their attitude towards their father and his favored son are utterly transformed. That's, that's grace. That's the grace of repentance. And so God worked repentance into the brothers. And it's visible. That's another thing we need to see about repentance. Repentance is always visible. Repentance isn't merely a few shed tears or issuing an apology and then expecting everything to go back to the way it once was. It's tangible. Repentance is, is evidenced in a changed life. And it's seen here in these brothers. They've recognized their guilt. They've confessed it. And their attitudes and actions have been changed by God. Well, there's a third thing here, quickly. God is working to bring comfort to, 
Jacob, he's working to bring the brothers to repentance. And then thirdly, he's working to show grace through Joseph. Another way we could put it is to say he is working to save lives through Joseph. God sent me here to preserve life. That's Joseph's interpretation of these events. But last time you remember that Joseph saw, uh, spoke to his brothers, he was roughing them up. He, sp- he spoke roughly to them. He spoke roughly to us, the brothers said. Verbally, of course. Now, we might think that's not very kind, that's not very loving, but in fact, Joseph's heart was burning with affection for his brothers. And he had the discernment to realize that this is what they needed to be wakened up to the reality of their sin and their guilt. The evidence of Joseph's affection is seen in the times he has to pull away where in privacy just to weep. And, and on this occasion, he cannot contain it. And the whole Egyptian palace hears his uncontrollable sobs mingled, I think, with, with joy and relief and, and thanksgiving because of what God was doing. He, he sends everyone else out. And imagine, I wish I could have seen this unfold. He sends everyone else out. And now... Joseph begins speaking Hebrew for the first time to his brothers. Up till now, he's been speaking to them through an interpreter. He speaks to them in their own tongue and he says, it's me. I'm Joseph, the one you sent into slavery. And what is, what is Joseph going to do? What, look at what kind of savior he, he proves to be. Their, their lives are in his hands. He possesses all power and authority. He could enact judgment like this. But instead he shows himself to be their savior. And and, and look at how lavish of a savior he proves himself to be. He he weeps with love. He, He recognizes that through his brother's wicked actions, God was at work to send him ahead to preserve life. He was sold for 20 pieces of silver and he gives Benjamin 300 pieces. He had his special cloak, his garment torn away from him. And Joseph covers his brothers in garments. You know, something marvelous then happens at the end of this story as they go back and they, they speak to their father. You know, it's striking that all through, throughout this narrative, the, when the brothers are speaking of Joseph, They never name him. And the author is careful writing this narrative. The author doesn't use Joseph's name in those contexts. But now you get to the end of the story here. In uh, Genesis 45 verse 26. When they told him all the words of Joseph. Which he had said to them. And when they saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him. The spirit of their father Jacob revived. And then notice in verse 28. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go to, to see him before I die. You know, the story of Joseph, it makes me think of a story about our Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. 
this story about Joseph testing his brothers. Remember the occasion in John chapter 6 when Jesus is with his disciples and these crowds have come out to hear Jesus teach and they've been listening for some time and people are getting hungry. But no one has any food or money. And there isn't a local giant eagle someone can run to and grab some fried chicken. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, feed them. And it's, it's kind of funny, I think. Feed them. And, and, and they say, that's impossible. We don't, we don't have anything to feed them with. And then John slips in this little statement. It says, uh, he, Jesus said this in order to test them. For he knew what he was going to do. That's what's happening here with Joseph and his brothers. And my friends, it's what's often happening in our lives too. He did this in order to test them. That is to see what was in them. To, to prove, as it were, God's work of grace in their lives. And so by the end of this, the family will return to the son. Notice how he's described the son who is still alive. Not a great statement. The son who was despised and rejected, but who is still alive. And the, the very brothers who sold him into slavery and actually wanted him dead are the brothers who are invited to come to him for life and salvation from this famine, at least. And just the same, dear friends, we are invited to go to, to our Joseph, to, to our Jesus, who was despised and reject, rejected, but who is still alive. And we are able to go to him for life and salvation, knowing that he knows what he has been doing in our lives all along. And so today, as we bring this to an end, maybe, maybe the way to to end this is to ask you the question, what is, what is God doing in your life? What is Jesus doing in your life? It's not, it's not possible for me to sit here during the preparation of worship and stand before you Sunday morning and, and not at times be overwhelmed with a sense of how much sadness and pain and grief there is among our congregation. You know, we put on a good face. And sometimes pastors see just a little bit more than everybody else. There's pain and disappointment and deprivation uh, among us. And sometimes a Jacob-like twist can develop in our lives where we refuse to be comforted. And I think what Jesus is here today to do, dear friends, is by his word and spirit invite us to let go of the things that we are clinging on to. To open up our hands to him and to yield ourselves and our lives to Jesus, to trust in his mercy and to know that he knows exactly what he is doing in our lives. So let's yield ourselves 
to our Joseph. And let's pray. Father, thank you for the testimony of your work among your people, for the way this story teaches us of your ways with us, how you minister comfort, how you work repentance, how you reveal your grace. Lord, help us as a people in the midst of perplexing and often painful providences to yield all of our lives into your hands and to trust that you are at work and that you will bring your purposes to pass. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.